There's healing value, I think, in the perception of beauty. If we are so utilitarian, or if we are allowed to be talked out of the idea of, say, beauty and so on, I think we'll suffer. So that's, I don't know, is that religion? Is it a commonsensical way to operate in the world? I don't know. What I do know is, is that it's hard to separate spirit from flesh for me. Welcome to Podcast from the Prairie with Wes Jackson. This is a show for the curious and the concerned, folks who like to ponder big questions and aren't afraid to face big problems. Wes Jackson co-founded the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas, an internationally renowned research and education center. He won a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant and the Right Livelihood Award, often referred to as the Alternative Nobel Prize. He's a geneticist working to change not only the way we farm and feed ourselves, but also the way we think about how the world around us really works and where we fit in it. Retired Professor Robert Jensen talks with Wes about his creaturely worldview and how to understand the past while imagining the future. Robert always prompts Wes to do what he does best, share distinctive and engaging stories about everything from his childhood to his quest to revolutionize agriculture. This is episode number four. There's Methodism to my madness. Here's Robert Jensen. I'm Robert Jensen, your guide into the restless and relentless mind of Wes Jackson. I first bumped into Wes's work more than three decades ago, and his ideas have had a profound influence on my thinking about society and ecology. My conversations with Wes in this podcast will explain why and give you a chance to see how his mind works, how Wes has cultivated the art of seeing small and thinking big. These will be conversations about big ideas that come from Wes's deep roots in the prairie, where he spent most of his life. So good morning, Wes. Uh, good morning, Bob. We've titled this episode, The Methodism in My Madness. That's a phrase you've used for some time now to describe your religious roots. It, it honors the church you attended with your family growing up, a Methodist church, even though you're no longer a believer in traditional terms. So let's start with that history. Were you ever a good Methodist? Uh, and are you a Methodist today in any sense? Uh, well, I've never been a good Methodist. I enjoyed Sunday school more than I did the church sermon that came later. And when I got old enough, I could sit at the back with the other boys. But even there, I would sneak out, uh, go to the drugstore uh, down the street there in North Topeka, go down there and read the comic books, or stop at the service station that was close to the church, and I uh, got another education there. I got I, my vocabulary improved, um, or at least it expanded. There was profanity, there was obscenity, the kind of thing going on there that was counter to what was going on in the church. And, um, you know, I always found Sunday school more fun uh, than the church. The what was fun about Sunday school? What, what made that enjoyable? Well, there were some good, interesting stories in there. Uh, you know, David and Goliath, 
uh, how Absalom got hanged uh, riding his mule, got his hair caught up in the branches. Um, the preaching, it was boring. And then, um, you know, just hearing that story of the trip on the part of Moses and those folk, and that kind of carried over. I even went on Sunday nights when I was at Kansas Wesleyan over to MSM, the Methodist Service Movement, and there it was fun to argue with the pre-ministerial students that always attended. So, so it sounds like you're saying that in, in theological terms, the stories are interesting, the debate, the, the dialogue, and the disagreement is interesting. You just don't like being preached to. Um, do you think that is a pattern in your life? You don't like either preaching at people or preaching to them? You'd rather tell stories or, or argue a bit? Or hear the stories, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 So uh, it wasn't altogether negative going to church. I'm going to leave this question of whether you're a Methodist today in any sense. Uh, we'll come back to that. But let's stay with your early experience. In your family, uh, in your, with your parents, your mother seems to be the one who was most committed to um, the religious worldview. Is that accurate? And if so, how would you describe her faith? What did your mother believe in? Well, I think my mother was a serious Christian that um, believed the conventional story as it was told in the Bible. One thing, though, that was different from, uh, well, I think Methodists generally are different than, say, the Holy Rollers and uh, the people that are quite emotional, those that um, speak in tongues and all that. She had uh, little to do with those kind of preachers. I think she was in it in a way that she saw it had some real value, uh, some real utility. What good could come out of it besides your connection to God? It was all a piece, I think. Do you mean what good in terms of, let's say, community solidarity, that kind of thing, was she concerned with? Yeah, you know, just some of the, I mean, especially if you read uh, the parables, uh, there's a lot of wisdom in those parables. And if you take the parables seriously, and if you, you know, if you're acknowledging something that um, causes you to be more humble, causes you to be more attentive to proper conduct, all of that has utility. I mean, just the reading of Ecclesiastes is loaded with wisdom. And the reading of... Uh, you know, um, Job, the book of Job. Mm -hmm. You know, the only prayers I ever heard from my mother were prayers in blessing the food. And uh, that was it. There was not even, uh, <laughs> there was not even a thanks, the giving of thanks that came at the end of some households' uh, prayers. So it, there was a lot of, utility associated with the message. It sounds like it was a kind of quiet, certainly not a showy expression of faith. You regularly point out that there's a passage 
uh, in the Gospels where Christ says we should only pray in private, not to show off. Right. He said, enter thy closet. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, your mother also, you, you've talked about how your mother was skeptical of, of movies uh, when you were young. Was her skepticism of the, the influence of movies uh, a cultural thing, a religious thing? When you think back on that, what was she, do you know what she was thinking when she was worried about um, kids being exposed to too much of that? Well, if she were alive today, well, I would ask her, how was it that uh, I was not allowed more than a couple of movies a year? Uh -huh. I think that, uh, well, she also, did, I was never encouraged to uh, join Boy Scouts. And uh, also, there was not much encouragement in 4-H either, and certainly not going off to camp. I never went off to camp. Other people went off to camp, not me. I thought it was because I had to stay home and do work. But I think there's more to it. Otherwise, why wasn't I able to go to those movies? I think it was maybe a problem of the worldly uh, yeah. that is going to get you on a path that uh, she didn't think was good for me. Now, she didn't know I was going down and reading funny books. Uh, while the sermon was going on, and she didn't know that I was stopping off at the service station there to hear some language that was um, not going on next door in church. Uh, you know, I was I was filling in the blanks maybe uh, that she thought were being denied me. I don't know what she thought. I wish I knew. Well, you know, good parents today talk about how they have to limit the screen time of their kids, keep them off these devices all day. Maybe your mother was just uh, ahead of her time worrying about too much screen time for Well, I, I have thought about that, that uh, yeah. there's plenty right here for us to absorb. There's yeah. plenty to read and absorb. Yeah. Um, as you think back on your childhood, uh, as you started to develop your own ideas, was there um, ever a time in which the, the the conventional Christian dogma was powerful for you, was meaningful? Did it ever put the hook in you? Uh, it might have, but it didn't last long. Uh, I tried to be a Christian. I guess I would sort of worked at it, especially in my late teens and very early, uh, not much into the 20s. I worked at it. I was asking a lot of questions because there were a lot of people around that I respected that took Christianity seriously. And I have to say, I still take Christianity seriously in my own way. Uh, but... Uh, uh, I just had a hard time seeing, you know, here we, we have the chickens and we have the hogs and we have the cows and we see life and we see death. And I wondered how are we different and why should we be different? How is it? But then when I was in college, 
There was a friend of mine that I washed dishes with at the Pinnock Cafe who was super religious, so religious that he refused to, to sign up uh, for the army. And uh, they gave him every chance to take the proper procedures to be a conscientious objector. He refused. I went to his trial in uh, Kansas City. And uh, he was sent to the asylum. But there's something about him that made me wonder, what is it that he can be such a devoted believer? The fact that I bothered to go down and see that trial tells me that I was taking seriously this other guy that was taking Christianity far more serious than I was. It sounds like you were interested in his motivation. You were curious what what kind of faith could lead to that commitment. Is that accurate? Right. That's right. And I had another friend in college at Kansas Westland who was a serious Christian. And uh, I think he didn't like the particular uh, range of vocabulary that I would use. <laughs> Uh, and uh, he thought it would help me if I were to set up in my, I, I had a room alone in the dorm, uh, that if I would maybe get the Bible out and open it and have a candle there, that my spiritual life would be on the uptake. Uh, well, I didn't try it, uh, but he really was trying to get me to become like him. <laughs> yeah a believer, and he was that kind of a person all the way until his death. I mean, I went to his wedding way out in western Kansas. I counted him as a good friend, a thoughtful guy, and uh, we even went to the same um, Seward Avenue Methodist Church in north end of Salina. It isn't as though I was in rebellion uh, it's that I was, I guess, more interested in what's, what's going on here. But I just couldn't quite bend over all the way uh, and stay that way. Yeah. So you did attend Kansas Wesleyan University as an undergraduate, and that is a Methodist college. Were there faculty or pastors on campus who you recall as having an influence on you? Yes, uh, Reverend W.E. Cassell, Professor of Religion and Bible. I have a picture of him in this uh, book of mine, uh, Hogs Are Up. And uh, I asked uh, Brother Cassell once, I said, Brother Cassell, do you believe that when you die, you're going to get siphoned off and go live with Jesus in heaven forever? And uh, he said, uh, Wesley, I never like the way you ask a question. But no, uh, I don't believe that. But I do believe that values are eternal. Well, that was useful. And it was pleasing to know that the professor of religion and Bible uh, did not think he was going to go live with Jesus. And this is the same professor that on the sidewalk you meet, it would be Good morning, Wesley. What is the condition of your soul this morning? Well, I had to think about that. So there was this kind of attention to some kind of a spiritual life that uh, was of interest to me. 
And your story, Brother Cassell, indicates that belief in small-town rural Kansas wasn't unitary. People had a range of interpretations of the text and the tradition, it sounds like. Let's fast forward. You mentioned your book, Hogs Are Up. Um, People will have to read the book to know what that title means. That'll be out in 2021. Um, You have a great story in Hogs Are Up about your service as a an adult Sunday school teacher in Salina. So you you went to Kansas Wesley and you went off to graduate school, you came back to teach, and you were leading an adult Sunday school class where you uh, took your class through the creed. Tell us that story and, and how that that worked out. Yes, well these uh, these were young adults, most of them married couples. I was back from Raleigh from uh, finishing a PhD, and uh, and so I don't know. They somehow got me to teach this class, and uh, I thought it'd be interesting. Well, I asked them uh, one morning. I said, "Look, how about if we take the Apostles' Creed and just go through it step by step?" So uh, you know, I knew the creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, whose only Son, our Lord, was born of the Virgin Mary. Well, I stopped there. How many of you agree with that Virgin Mary? Well, the couple started looking at one another, and and then maybe there'd be a hand or two that went all the way up, but then maybe a hand or two would only go chest high. <laughs> and uh, so I moved on. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, no problem there. Crucified, yes, that's a, got that. Dead and buried. Uh, the third day he rose from the dead. More looking around the room at one another, and so on. So they couldn't get to that rose from the dead. And then they ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. They just couldn't get there, some of them. A few did. And I finally stopped. I said, look, <laughs> why is this our creed? Why, why do we say this? And then I can't remember what happened from there, except uh, at the end of it all, there was a woman there, a uh, young woman that uh, had been to the asylum at Topeka, and they had told her to get into a church and uh, she was crying. She said, they told me to get into a church, and now you've taken everything away from me. Well, that, was, that just hit me like a force. And I told the preacher, and he said, well, you shouldn't be teaching that class, and you shouldn't be in the church. And so I don't know if I resigned or I was kicked out, but at any rate, no longer did I teach that Sunday school class. And all I was doing was asking a question of our statement of faith. Yeah. That brings up two interesting things. One is there's a supernatural component to some people's Christianity, a belief in the virgin birth, a belief in the resurrection as literal historical events. And then you're pointing out, I think, that a lot of people who consider themselves Christians have a hard time in the modern world accepting the supernatural claim. It also, you know, says something about doubt. A lot of people think that an important part of faith is doubt, although it sounds like the minister didn't agree. 
Yeah, I don't know. That minister was a smart enough guy. But uh, I tell you, I saw something else. This is after that episode that um, I had a lot of friends here in Salina. They were going to the Presbyterian church. And there was a minister in that church that they just loved. And they told me that uh, it'd be a good thing for me to come and hear him. Well, I went one time and sat up in the balcony. And uh, I thought, yeah, he's a pretty smart guy. He's saying a lot of good things here. And then I would hear where I thought he was headed. And uh, I'd think, yeah, preacher, go get him. And he came right down to the end, and he let up. He did not. He did not finish it off. And uh, everybody walked away comfortable. They had heard a great message again. So I told him. I said, "Well, that was a great sermon until he got to where it really counted, and what the implications <laughs> were." And they, oh well, you got to go hear him again, Wes. You got to go hear him again. So I went back again. He did the same thing. Uh, and so this told me something, that uh, they just could not bring themselves themselves to going the way of the Scriptures, <laughs> uh, at least as I understood. You know, you carry that all the way to the book of Revelation. You carry it all the way through Paul and all the things that Paul was saying it made me realize that um, they weren't paying attention to certain parts of that Bible except as kind of outliers. And uh, so I've continued to be interested in a lot of the Bible. I mean, I maybe get it, well, I certainly get into it uh, whenever I feel the need to get something that I kind of remembered from the past. So it isn't though that I'm you know, throwing it all overboard, it's that, uh, well, what are you going to do if you have a different idea of the origin of life and how life forms have come? I mean, I'm a Darwinian evolutionary biologist, and uh, I don't have any anger or irritation or whatever toward all those folks that lived in that two-sphere uh, world where there was heaven and there was earth. Uh, it's just that um, somehow or another we don't seem to be able to take the best of those scriptures and uh, apply them in the modern world. Yeah. You've described yourself um, in the past as a five-eighths Christian. That is, you believe about five-eighths of what's in the Bible. I take that to mean that you don't believe in divine creation of the human species, um, and you don't believe in the more supernatural claims of, of an orthodox Christianity, but most of the rest of it's okay with you? Well, yeah, I mean, look, I, 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 uh, <laughs> I don't think we ought to go creating male sky gods. There seems to be some need to have some three-dimensional uh, something or other. Well, you know, I look at the, the, the universe is just full of all kinds of uh, creativity. 
And um, I see the earth as having given rise to us. Now, of course, it required everything else associated with the earth, which is a sun, which is a distance from that sun, which is a tilt of the earth that gives us the various phases of the year. But out of all of that is uh, just an amazing creation. I mean, here we are. And, uh, you know, I, I think every now and then about that, <laughs> I mentioned the other day, that ant that was crawling along on a ledge, and I thought of that ant, and I thought of that 80-foot whale out there in the ocean. Both of them have the same citric acid cycle. Now, to me, that is far, far more interesting and believable. Believable. And how did we come to know that? Well, we didn't come to know it out of the reading of the scriptures. We came to know that as a result of something far more humble. And that is folks called scientists that have essentially adopted the idea of back in around 1660, the Royal Society being formed, you know, adopted the idea, trust no one's opinion. We are to come to understand this by our collective thought, our collective investigation, uh, our collective consciousness. And um, in such a manner, out of that has come everything from penicillin to an awful lot of other stuff that is, <laughs> is not good for us, and industrial revolution. So, yeah. you know, I'm just saying that there is the science that uh, I happen to be a part of, and that is plus and minus. Anyway. Yeah, you cite that Royal Society motto. Uh, the Latin translates into take no one's word, that the evidence is what's crucial. No claims are, are accepted without evidence. And you've pointed out that in Christianity, which is, of course, the religious tradition you're most familiar with, there's a certain higher status to faith without evidence. It's in the Gospel of John, where uh, Thomas has demanded proof that Jesus was really resurrected. And, and Jesus says, well, uh, you have believed because you have seen, but blessed are those who believe without seeing, which suggests almost it's better to not have evidence. Uh, this conflict between faith and evidence, um, where do you come down on it? Uh, you know, evidence is important, but what about faith? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, uh, that's a tough one. I mean, I have faith that the sun will come up the next day. I have a faith the sun will go down. In science, sometimes, uh, you know, I have faith in some cures, but I also am sufficiently skeptical when I think about taking in some medication to correct something wrong in my body. Uh, I don't believe in side effects. There are only effects. 
This may be better, but there's going to be a cost. You think about taking in chemicals that our tissues have no evolutionary experience with, even though whatever it is you're taking on may help get over a headache. So even there with data, there has to be, for me, a mistrust. Now, some people, you know, just simply accept uh, whatever the doctor is ordering. So there's faith, but it's, there's a limit on how much faith you can uh, accept. So that, that makes me think, you, you know, you're a scientist, uh, you evaluate evidence, and a lot of scientists, you know, would probably classify themselves as atheists. Some of them fairly strident about it. I was just thinking of Richard Dawkins, uh, part of that so-called new atheist crowd, a famous biologist. When you see people like Richard Dawkins going on the attack against religion, and he's pretty pretty sharp about it and, and not terribly respectful of, of people with faith. Do you find yourself wanting to defend people of faith? Well, yes. Uh, I mean, I, look, I have a lot of friends that may not be 100% Christians, but they're farther along in the journey than I, that believe much more belief in the power of prayer than I have. So one has to be careful. I also have good friends that are total believers saying the Bible is inerrant. I've said several times that um, I don't know what I think until I know what my friends think. That is to say, there are certain people that, there are people that I trust to shoot straight with me on giving me an opinion. I may not agree with everything that I know they believe, but I trust their opinion more than I would trust mine. And so, you know, we're not, we're not either this or that. We are a multiple of things. In other words, it, it takes a, to get through the day <laughs> takes more than just a, a faith in science, a belief in science, a trust of evidence. That, it sounds like you're saying we're, we're creatures that are made up of both our rational capacity, but a, you know, an emotional, maybe some would call it a spiritual component. Yeah. Do you accept that notion of a spiritual dimension to life, or does, does that just not ring true to you? I've never understood what the word spiritual means. Uh, I've had a lot of people explain it to me. <laughs> See, <laughs> I don't know. I get up in the morning and my spirits are high sometimes. Uh, in fact, most times. Let me try a, a, a little different attack on this. Okay. I think it's going to be important if humans are to make it to reevaluate what really counts. I think that being in a community and having a culture is the way forward from now on. Now, there are some that simply want to be among the elect. So what did they do? Well, they may go to a good Ivy League school or any other good 
institution. And um, some of them will come out and do a lot of social justice work or do something in the development of community, do good work, you know. Others mm -hmm. will head for Wall Street. You know, there's this old thing about being rich or famous. Some want both. Uh, I think those are the ones following the false prophets of our time, the prophets that go for profit. And so there are two kinds of faith here and two kinds of spirit that are at work. And I think some people lose the way. They may start out all right, uh, but the temptations are always there. So when I am seeing some trees come into bloom in the early spring and my spirit is lifted at the beauty of it all, Am I having a spiritual experience? Well, <laughs> not in the sense that a lot of the folk may have, but uh, this is just, this is too complicated to put a label on somebody. There's too much at work. So you're a biologist, you, you're a botanist, uh, you're a geneticist. You know a lot about life on this planet, uh, more than the average person. But I've heard you say often um, that when you see life, you're not studying it as a scientist, but when you see it, you're in the middle of it, you experience it, that flower opens up, uh, the clouds roll in. You have an experience that is beyond the science. And that is, uh, what is that? What is that experience where it's not about what you know, it's about what you feel? How would you, what, what, what label would you put on that? Well, it's a label that goes beyond mere utility, but it may have utility value. Let's say that there's somebody that has been sick or maybe has lost a friend due to death or a parent or whatever. But uh, they see that sunrise and those trees and see whatever of beauty, and it lifts their spirits. And that, in fact, may have uh, adaptive and healing value. There's healing value, I think, in the perception of beauty. So if we keep that out of our mind, this is why I think the arts are so important. If we are so utilitarian, or if we are allowed to be talked out of the idea of, say, beauty and so on, I think we'll suffer. So that's, I don't know, is that religion? Uh, is it a commonsensical way to operate in the world? I don't know. What I do know is, is that it's hard to separate spirit from flesh for me. It sounds like what you're saying, that you're not going to believe anything without evidence. You're not going to accept anything as, as true without evidence. But there's a whole lot about being alive on this planet for which evidence is inadequate. There's just too much happening for us to ever assume we'll have the evidence to make those you know, absolute claims. Is that, is that a fair 
summary of what you're talking about? Well, yes. Now, I could never get to the level of understanding the Big Bang, whether the Big Bang, how it happened or any of that. There's an awful lot uh, that I just rely on those people that are being checked by others that are comparable in their capabilities that tell me uh, how stars are born, that tell me uh, how the elements in our bodies have been cooked in some remote past of a dying star. I can't get into all that myself. I have faith in the scientists that uh, have a similar way of knowing that I do. That's based on faith. Now, I also know that some of those are going to be changing their minds. There's going to be a change of mind on maybe how the Big Bang did happen. I don't know. But the larger point being is we are counting on the human mind to be at work on one another and try to be as open as possible to get at reality. Yeah, you pointed out that you have friends who are secular, friends who do not have a religious tradition. You have friends who are rooted in a faith tradition. And it seems to me what you were saying is that what's more important is to whether somebody, you know, signs on to religion or not, is whether they can hold on to humility. Am I hearing you correctly that humility is really the value, the virtue that we have to hold on to, whether we're religious or secular? Well, yes, and because once the humility begins to lighten up or go away, now comes the journey toward um, a disruption, a disruption of order. There's something about what happens once somebody gets on that path, especially if they don't work to overcome those tendencies. Look, I don't know if this will help or not. I have good friends who are Amish. I could never be an Amish person because I cannot adopt all that they are about. But a big part of their concept in order to maintain a good community life is their belief in a relationship to God that is not the same as my belief in a relationship to God. But a derivative of their way of thinking is what causes them to have a coherence within their community so that, as one of my friends put it, um, he knows that if he is sick, he said, I was out working the fields one day and I could count, I think he said, eight different teams of horses in the field. And he said, I knew that if something that were to happen to me, there could be eight teams in my fields to take care of my problem. There was a coherent community. That same Amishman told me about putting in a neighbor's barn a cutting of hay. And uh, when I complimented him on it, he said, oh, no, well, his barn was closer than my barn. And you know what I got out of it? I got the use of his stallion. So here, there's nothing lost within that community. But what is it that caused him to do that? 
put that hay in the barn. It's Christian. He was loving his neighbor as he loved himself. And nothing was lost. We also said he got eight loads of manure, as well as the use of his stallion. Now, I could not live in that community and be... <laughs> I would have to dump a whole bunch of, of what I have become. Now, had I been born into that community, maybe, maybe I too would have uh, been able to, to go along with it all. Yeah. And I try to think how we could bring that to a more secular society. And it's a question for me, is it possible? We're, we're wily creatures, and uh, <laughs> it's hard to settle on any one thing. I mean, you ask about Dawkins. I just don't see the need for Dawkins to be so um, aggressive about Darwinian evolution. I mean, what, what is it that he is after in that? And is he not aware that um, there's a lot more subtlety in the way the human mind is able to work than just having some absolute belief that is, mm. um, that, you know, I'm, <laughs> people ask me, am I, am I an atheist? Well, my answer is, I don't know enough to be an atheist. Am I agnostic? Well, I guess so, but uh, I don't much like these labels. We're making a movement through the world, being watchful to make the most sense of the world uh, that we can, rather than live with lines of belief and adopting somebody's absolute, you know. You know, you mentioned evolutionary biology and usually seen as a, um, in opposition to religion, but there are some evolutionary biologists, some anthropologists who argue that religion is adaptive. It helps, as you're pointing out, keep communities connected. And for survival, you know, a unified community is an advantage over a bunch of atomized individuals just doing their own thing. So what, what's your position on that? Do you think that whether there's a God in the sky or not, that the idea of religion is, is actually got adaptive value in evolutionary terms? Yeah, I've wondered about that. And uh, it may well be that uh, having that big brain brings with it the opportunity to be thinking beyond the mere utility, and it may be that the happiest people are those that are able to say, oh, well, uh, God will take care of it. And they may live longer, or they may live, simply live beyond the reproductive years. It may be, I don't know. I've wondered about it. It could be that it's simply a product of uh, neural connections that um, those that had that way about them, there was some adaptive value. There's a lot of questions hanging out there. A lot of people have been trying to understand that. But could be that religion is a derivative of some selective pressure.
let's go back to your Kansas roots. You uh, have lived outside of Kansas for short periods of time, but you always found your way back. You have connections to people of faith in Kansas. Um, you celebrate your roots. You take every opportunity you can to remind people you're just a farm boy from Kansas. Uh, today, if you, in, in especially if you go into urban areas and you say, rural Kansas, small town, Christian, most people are going to assume conservative, even reactionary politics, uh, a Christianity that is not inclusive of different traditions. Does that cause you any pain to know that the state and the, the culture out of which you come now is seen by much of the world as being reactionary? Yeah, I, I am concerned about, uh, for instance, where the state of Kansas uh, now is compared to the way it first considered a high moral necessity was to see to it that it didn't come in as a slave state. And, uh, you know, I don't much like the terms liberal or conservative, uh, but I also think that areas that don't have many people, rural small towns, rural communities, and so on, have been seriously discriminated against that uh, if they were to, if folks were to come out and drive around and see uh, these little small towns just throughout Kansas here, uh, and it's not just here, it's another throughout the Midwest and Great Plains, they may begin to get an idea <laughs> as to what has happened here. How is it that these places have gone down? You know, we've had leaders that have said, to farmers, get bigger, get out, as though the economic imperative is what it's all about. So I blame our larger society on a lot of our problems out here that is flyover country. That's painful for me to see yeah. the sort of denigration. I mean, I've had folks say to me when I've gone around maybe to give a talk and, you know, you always invited in to talk to some professors that uh, may be interested in your subject. And I've had them say to me, well, why are you in Kansas? Uh, well, <laughs> because I wanted to be. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you don't mind being critical of the, the contemporary politics of Kansas. Kansas is a red state. It's actually quite harshly conservative. I use the word reactionary. You're not afraid to criticize those politics. But when you drive around rural Kansas and see a small town with all those buildings boarded up, um, you feel a loss. And you want to blame not the small town, but the larger economic forces right. that destroyed right. that town. Right. I do not blame Kansans for our predicament so much as I blame uh, the power structure that is able to just take care of itself and not be attentive to the ecological and economic catastrophe out our way. 
I mean, these, these, are, these are my fellow Kansans uh, <laughs> that uh, uh, we don't deserve what comes our way. Yeah. Well, th that brings me to my last question. I want to go back to where we started. We titled this uh, The Methodism in My Madness. And, and that line you've used in talks, and it always gets a chuckle. But is there a way in which it is accurate to still say Wes Jackson is a Methodist? Are you a Methodist, sir? Well, the wonderful thing about that title is that it has to do with a method. And uh, mm -hmm. one of my methods has to do with a way of knowing. And that way of knowing is based on information that's verifiable. And so, yeah, it's natural to be a Methodist in that sense. I understand what you're saying there, but I want to ask a slightly different question. Um, you've acknowledged that even, you know, the rational aspect of the human that seeks evidence and logical explanation, as developed as that can be in one of us, uh, there's a whole lot more to life than that. And there are experiences we have that don't reduce to evidence and logic, and we have to explain that. And is it useful to say that you are still a Methodist in some sense that your mother would recognize? Yeah, I would say yes. What I find is that I, as no longer Methodist in any sort of formal way, I am paying more attention to the scriptures generally than a lot of my friends that uh, attend church. These are wisdom points. You know, these are, I'm a Methodist in the sense that I still pay attention to that wisdom. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I guess I don't mind calling myself a Methodist in recovery or something. <laughs> what, one last question. Um, I was just thinking that I grew up in a Presbyterian church, and like you, I, I left traditional Christianity behind pretty early. But every once in a while, I'll remember um, a prayer or a hymn or something from my early experience. Often it's the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Yeah. Um, and it'll come to me, and it'll, it'll cause me to, to pause and ponder. Yeah. Do you have a a favorite uh, verse from scripture, a favorite prayer, a favorite hymn that you find has stayed with you? Oh, there are a lot of them that come up. You know, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. Or, you know, <laughs> I returned and I saw under the sun that the race is not to the strong and their wisdom to men of understanding, but I'm not getting this exactly right. But time and chance happeneth to them all. These things sort of just pop up as uh, unbidden many times. There's some very moving, there's some very moving language there. And uh, you don't know where it comes from. And why now? <laughs> so, yeah. and they, that in a way it comes as a gift that it's unbidden. 
So I'm not going to turn away from that because that's why maybe I count myself a five-eighths Christian. Uh, I'm a sermon on the mount. He who is without sin casts the first stone and more. But that doesn't mean that I accept the whole thing. But, you know, isn't that the way it is for we humans? We can't really accept it all. And probably even the most devout of all Christians will find parts of it that they don't understand and therefore uh, would be willing to reject if somebody could explain it in a way that would allow them to reject it. <laughs> well, Wes, um, you, you mentioned that uh, you got chased out of teaching Sunday school in Salina by a Methodist minister years ago. I just want to say that by the power vested in me by this podcast, I restore your standing in good faith to the Methodist Church and declare that Wes Jackson is now a Methodist in good standing. So uh, you got a clear conscience now. So. Yeah. Okay. So I'm no longer five-eighths. Am I eight-eighths? God doesn't deal in fractions, son. That's my... Uh, if that's not in Scripture, I think it should be. God doesn't deal in fractions. So there you go. Uh, West well, what Jackson? about the earth? Does it deal in fractions? Yeah. <laughs> All I can say, sir, is uh, I'm looking forward to uh, the next episode of our podcast. So go forward and sin no more until then. All right. And uh, I'll preach Great. the gospel to every living creature. All right. Thanks for listening to Podcasts from the Prairie with Wes Jackson and Robert Jensen. For more information on their work, just do a search for each of their names online and you'll find a lot of information. If you've enjoyed this conversation, remember to tell your friends to look for it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks also to our sponsors, The New Perennials Project and Ecosphere Studies, an educational initiative of the Land Institute. And for absolutely tons of fascinating information and vital resources, or to make a donation, please be sure to visit landinstitute.org. This podcast is produced by Bill Vitek, Robert Jensen, Bob Sly, and me, Michael Johnson. Music and audio production services are provided by Marcelo Radulovich at Tidikakaman Studios. This has been a production of Perennial Films.